This sermon is brought to you by Shofar East London. Together, living out the fullness of Christ. We hope you enjoy this message. Right, so today we're continuing with our End Times series. And uh, this is the second one two weeks ago. I started with the first one. And uh, continuing now with answering the question, when is the end? Can we know when the end is? Now, it seems that in every season where there are great turmoil, whether it's the world wars, the great famines, the end of a century or scary plagues, people have tended to proclaim it is the end. It seems like... You know, it's human nature for us to jump to worst case scenarios, doom and gloom. It is the end, even in our personal lives. Something bad happens or medium bad happens, a few negatives come into our lives and then we just tend to pull it to worst case scenarios, paranoia, suspicions. But that is just, unfortunately, um, human nature. We jump to conclusions. And... In this current scenario, now add a worldwide pandemic, and you can have worldwide paranoia. Paranoia on a global scale. And, and that's what we're currently seeing. And if we look at the past, and as I shared two weeks ago, you know, you want to look at the you, you, context is king. That's what I shared two weeks ago. That you want to take a step back. And see the bigger picture. Don't just look at the specific moment in time or the specific issue. Take a step back. See the context. Context is king. Like the Y2K. Year 2000, people were, man, it's the end. 1899, they were like at the end of that century. It is the end. Now, if we look at history, in every single case where people proclaim their specific date, that it is the end. They were 100% wrong. Every single time, completely wrong, without exception. The second coming of Christ hasn't happened. And everybody that proclaimed that they, this is the specific date, they, they missed it. So, this made me think. Can we know? I mean, can we know? Can we say, end of this year, Jesus coming back? Can we say, it is the end? So that's, that's sort of what I started to look at. Are there clear signs that we can look at and say, man, yeah, it's definite. Jesus coming back tomorrow. Are there signs to look at? So I want to I wanna look at that. So 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32, uh, which is a key verse for us in this series. It says there, of the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times, To know what Israel ought to do. So why do you want to understand the times? So that you can know how to respond. You want to understand what the heck is going on so that you will know, well, this is how I should now respond. If you don't understand or you incorrectly understand the season, you're going to respond in the wrong way. So I want to help you guys. I want to help you get clarity and to break out of confusion. And uh, so this series we're doing, it's a teaching series. So we're going a little bit deeper than usual. We're going to really get into the Word. I'm going to really storm through a few scriptures. Uh, It's like last week was a relational Sunday. So it's more stories and more focus on relationships. But this is now the teaching series. So you need to put on that cap. 
teach your cap. Like, I want to learn cap, okay? Good, 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 good. Okay, so understanding the times so that we may know how to respond. Now, one of the keys to understanding eschatology or the study of the end times, as I said, is you need to get the bigger picture. And I have been struggling over the years with the book of Revelation. Because <laughs> how? Who's right? So many opinions, so many people talking, oh, no, it's this, or no, it's that, and this one is the Antichrist, and the Great Tribulation is on our doorsteps. And so I've, I've sort of avoided the book of Revelation. I've sort of just stepped away from the vehicle, because I don't know what to do with it. And I realized that that's actually not the right way. We should actually, let's tackle it, let's go a little bit deeper. And uh, I must say, I have received beautiful clarity in my own heart and mind. So I'm hoping I'm going to help you guys as well. So context is king. Step back, get the bigger picture. In every area of your life, if you want to understand how to make a wise decision, just take a step back, get the bigger picture. So when it comes to the book of Revelation, that's what we need to do. So I was reading an article a while ago, and this article said that there's four primary views on the book of Revelation. That was like an eye-opener to me, because we assume, no, there's just one. There's one. It's just this how it is. And then I got the book about it, um, concerning the, the different aspects of the four different aspects of the, of the book of Revelation. And as I was reading this commentary, it just opened my eyes, because I would read a verse and then read four different angles on how to interpret these verses. And I realized, wow, just the bigger picture revealed to me that um, I don't think we should be so dogmatic when it comes to interpreting the specifics. There's been respected theologians embracing each one of these four different angles on end times things. So there are certain aspects of the end times that are undeniable, like we know that there will be a second coming of Christ. When? We don't know. How? We don't know, but we know Jesus will come back. We know there will be eternal judgment of all people when Jesus returns. We know that for a fact. That is clear in Scripture. It's undeniable. Everybody's agreeing about that. But when it comes to other things, like say the rapture, uh, there's a lot of debate. What will it look like? When will it happen? The millennium, like the thousand year reign of Christ. When will that be? What will that look like? There's debate about that. And a, and a bunch of other aspects, there's a lot of debate and legitimate different angles or perspectives on these things. Okay, so that, that's really important to understand. Then also, I want to share with you the open hand versus closed hand principle. The open hand principle, or let me start with the closed hand. The closed hand principle is this. There are certain doctrines, certain teachings that are closed handed. In other words, we're not going to debate that. We're not going to have a conference about the deity of Christ. Jesus Christ is God who became flesh, was born of the Virgin Mary. He's the Son of God, and He's God in the flesh, and so more. The Trinity, all this, that, that's closed hand. And, and your traditional Orthodox Christianity, whether we're Methodists or Presbyterians or Baptists or Charismatics or whatever, Pentecostals, we, we all agree on those non-negotiables. Then when it comes to 
end times things. It's open-handed. This is not a hill you want to die on. Okay? But I know Jesus coming back like tomorrow or this date or, you know, it just, it's just silly. There are different aspects and it's open-handed. You can believe something. I can believe something and we can follow Jesus with all our hearts and we can be brothers in Christ. We're not going to split the church because you see the rapture differently than I do. Okay, so different perspectives. See the bigger picture. Closed-handed versus open-handed. Don't have a big fight about the specifics that we don't actually know. Okay, so the question is, can we know when it's the end? And when it comes to like end times theology, one of the reasons I also don't want to really get into it because I find that people that get obsessed with it, they become extremely unbalanced. I don't know if you've seen that, but I've seen that. It's just like, how is believing this adding to your walk in Christ? Is it bringing you closer to Jesus? Or is this just utterly confusing you and bringing terror to your heart? So that's also one reason I've stepped away in the past. But now we're going to, we're stepping in and we're going to bring some clarity. Okay, so four views. There's a book. Uh, you can put the picture on the, no, the book, book cover about the four views of Revelation. So uh, this is uh, by Steve Gregg. It's a commentary, four aspects. You want to get it? Brilliant. It really helps to see that overview, the big picture. And then there's a diagram about the four views. So I'm gonna quickly just mention it. I'll possibly get into more in the future, but this is the big picture. So there's the one view is called preterism. And now this believes, this is the first one at the top, it believes that most of the prophecies of the apocalypse have been fulfilled in the past. I believe the first 400 years, that, that that's what it speaks of. It has been fulfilled and you'll be amazed at how they connect history to the prophecies. It, it's a legitimate um, angle. Another one is historicism. And this sees the book of Revelation as a pre-written record of the course of history from the time of John, the author of the book of Revelation, to the end of the world. So it's like an overview of all of history until Jesus comes back. That's another angle. Third option is idealism, and there's more a spiritual approach. So the idealist approach to Revelation does not attempt to find individual fulfillments of the visions, but takes Revelation to be a great drama depicting transcendent spiritual reality, such as the ongoing conflict between Christ and Satan, between the, sa the saints and the anti-Christian world powers and more. So it's more a spiritual, metaphorical uh, 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 perspective. Now the good thing about this third perspective is that it means it's always relevant. You can find something in every era, every season, of the last 2,000 years and beyond, you're going to find something that's going to add to your walk with God. Now, the fourth one is called futurism. And it believes the bulk of the book refers to the events still to come. Futurist interpreters usually apply everything after chapter 4 to a relatively brief period before the return of Christ. Now, the downside of this interpretation, which is, I think, probably the most popular one, the one that really gets everybody psyched up, uh, the literal uh, fulfilling of these scriptures like now in the next coming year or two or three or seven, 
it definitely gets people more psyched up. Um, but the, the downside is that if it is so that chapter 4, 5 to 19 has had, you know, it's only about the future, then there's no relevance for the last 2,000 years. So in other words, for 2,000 years, those chapters meant nothing to the Christian church. So that sort of, that bugs me. So, for instance, Revelation 1 verse 3 one of the first verses in the book of Revelation says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. So it says that the book of Revelation, the time is near. In other words, it has relevancy to you now, like near. So, and then if we look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, where, where Daniel prophesies end time realities, but specifically the destruction of uh, Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the coming of the Messiah and the death of the Messiah, all of that prophesied. Then it says to Daniel, the angel speaks to Daniel and says, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end, the end of Jerusalem. Many shall run to and fro, knowledge shall increase. So in Daniel's case, it says, shut it up. It's not for now, it's for later. 500 years later, it became relevant. So, book of Revelation, it is for now, and there's a bunch of people that say, no, for the last 2,000 years, it, it meant nothing. It's all about the future. So, there's just a question mark that one needs to um, put in there. It says, for the time is near. Okay, so with big picture, bigger context. And so, when it comes to conspiracy theories, how should we address it? So the, again, the, I've seen the, the fruit or the impact of being obsessed with eschatology. It tends to make people a little bit off balance, a little bit weird. And the same with conspiracy theories. The, the fruit or the effect doesn't seem to be good on people. It's not bringing them closer to Jesus necessarily. The result is also with all the conspiracy theories that everybody's scheming and, you know, can't trust the government. There's a lot of suspicions being spread into society. And, and again, it causes us to be suspicious of government, of business leaders like Bill Gates, mainstream media in general. And, uh, yeah, and, and I'm wondering, you know, what if the conspiracy theories are not true? Let's hypothetically say it's not true, the conspiracy theories. And yet, many Christians are promoting it and spreading it. Let's say Bill Gates is actually a good oak and he's really trying to help people and spending millions and millions of dollars to help since the year 2000 to help kids get vaccinated and probably save millions of lives. Let's hypothetically say he's actually not as bad as some say. Then if we spread things that are not true, then it's called slander. Then we as believers are spreading slander and demonizing people and saying they are evil when maybe they are not. Is that a Christian response? Is that Christian when we're supposed to be the, the protectors of the truth and the promoters of truth, but now we become the guys that get most psyched up about the end times and the mark of the beast and all these things and we're spreading all these things and we're spreading fear and possibly a lot of slander. So think about that. So our key verse for the series is Isaiah 60, verse 2. It says, For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. Yes, there will be darkness. Yes, there will be issues. Deep darkness the people. But, come on, say but. 
But the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. You know, when we get a, the right perspective on scripture and who our God is, then when it gets dark, you know what? Our response, we get excited because the light shines better in the dark. Amen. The darker it gets, the more the light of Christ is supposed to shine upon us unless we have an incorrect understanding about eschatology and the end times and we just think, man, it's the end. I need to run for the hills. I'm going to get my mark of the beast any moment now. So I need to like, ah! you know, that's not shining your light. That is, uh, and no, so next week, next week, I'm going to club the mark of the beast along with vaccine. So next week is going to be very exciting. We're going to go there next week. Okay, so, so, so be here for that one. So the first truth that I shared in the first message was context is king and Jesus is king of kings. Context is king. Step back. See the bigger picture. And Jesus is king of kings. He's reigning from heaven above. He's not falling off his throne because there are some issues or pandemics here on earth. So that's step number one in terms of understanding the times. Now, principle number two that I want to encourage us to embrace today is this. Proverbs 1 Verse 7, if you want to understand the times, if you want to cut between truth and lies, you need this. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. The fear of the Lord gives us perspective to cut through all the clutter so that we can have wisdom and understanding in terms of how we should respond. Will we be like the rest of the world or will we embrace who God is? So the fear of the Lord is to understand the greatness of God. It's the foundation of true knowledge. It cuts through all the clutter. How do we find clarity? Simple. Embrace the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is to know that God is in charge. He's not in control of everything, but He is in charge. His will will ultimately be done. He reigns from heaven above. So what should our response then be when it comes to conspiracy theories? Look at this verse, one of my favorite ones, Isaiah 8 verse 11. It cuts through all the confusion. Now at this time, there was a, a lot of turmoil in Israel. There were a lot of people scheming. So even if there are people scheming, what should our response be? So the Lord spoke to the prophet Isaiah and he said, the prophet saying now, the Lord has given me a strong warning. Not to think like everyone else does. You can know if, if, if half the world's going one way, run the other way. <laughs> okay, they're probably going the wrong direction. Run the other way. So the Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does. He said, don't call everything a conspiracy. Hallelujah. Let me just repeat that again. Don't call everything a conspiracy like they do. And don't live in dread of what frightens them. Verse 13. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble. So what's making you tremble? What's making you tremble? Pandemics. What? Stories, scheming, conspiracies, even if there's a whole bunch of scheming and conspiracies, who cares? The Lord says, tremble at me, my greatness, my glory, 
the one who reigns from heaven above. Don't call everything a conspiracy. Don't fall for all the suspicions where you actually don't know what's reality anymore. You don't know to trust anything or anyone. That is a trap. So what are you afraid of? The Antichrist? Or do you reverence the living God? What are we afraid of? What are, what's causing you to tremble? Context is king and Jesus is Christ is the king of kings reigning from above. Okay, so that's a, a good way of uh, responding to conspiracy theories. Now, let's get into Matthew 24 and we answer the question now, the end. Can we know when the end is? Matthew 24 is, where, is one of the main passages where Jesus is asked, what will be the sign of the end? What will be, how will we know, Jesus, when you will return? How will we know when it's the end? Okay, so Matthew 24, let's unpack it. First verse is there. First one, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So Jesus prophesies and he says, this, this temple, I mean, a massive temple will be broken down to the last stone. It will be completely destroyed. He prophesies, as I said, two weeks ago, and that came to pass in 70 AD. Now, it's fascinating if you go read the history around the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. The Roman uh, soldiers' armies surrounded the, the, the city, and, and, and the Romans had more respect for the temple than the Jews did because there's such a bunch of corrupt, wicked individuals that were leading the, the, the Jews that were inside, like 1.5 million people on the inside of Jerusalem. They were surrounded by uh, uh, armies. And they were infighting. There were three factions and the Jews were killing one another. They were burning down one another's food storage places. So they were causing famine in their own city. And one of the factions was set up in the temple and they were fighting from there. And so the general Titus, the Roman general, he was pleading with him, guys, come out. We don't want to destroy. Let's go fight over there. Come out. And they were just like bent, hell bent on destruction, the Jews of that time. So verse 3, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when, when, when will these things be? Isn't that the question so many people want? When? Lord, when will it be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered, verse 4, take heed that no one deceives you. And that's why we're doing this series so that we will not be deceived, so that we can have clarity instead of Confusion And Jesus warning there, guys, don't be deceived. So now, if you want to understand Matthew 24, you need to understand that it speaks of two separate events. That's where people get confused. They all think it speaks of the return of Christ. It doesn't. I'll show you now. The one event it speaks of is the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's the one event it speaks of. That's when you must flee to the hills of Judea. The other thing it speaks of is the return of Christ. The first event, it says you will know. You will see the signs. You will know. You will know. The second one, it says you will not know. You will not know. Only the Father in heaven knows. Okay, so let me take you through some of those verses. Um, verse 32. It says, now learn this parable 
from the fig tree. This is Jesus speaking. When his branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. You can read the times, the signs of the times. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near. At the doors, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So we see that what Jesus spoke about it in that generation, within 40 years, it did come to pass. You will know, you will know, you will see the signs. And then verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. Are you seeing it? I'll unpack it a little bit more. But so you will see the signs, you will see the signs, and then you will not know when Jesus returns. So let's go back to the start of the, of the chapter, verse 6. So Jesus saying, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And so interesting enough, if you go read the history of that season, that era from middle 30, uh, 40 after Christ or until 70, that, that 30 year period or 20 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, it was extremely tumultuous season in that region. Wars, famines, plagues, and a whole lot of earthquakes all over the Mediterranean. Bunch of earthquakes. There were signs in the heavens. There were a whole lot of weird things happening. It was extremely tumultuous time. But to bring it through to our time, it basically says that if there are famines, if there are pestilences, if there are earthquakes, if there are wars, what does it mean in terms of the return of Jesus said, these are not the signs of my return. COVID-19 is not a sign that it's the end of the world and that Jesus is about to return. It's not one of the signs. It's not one of the signs. Okay, so COVID-19, doesn't. you can't make that connection. So let's move forward. The destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24 verse 15. Then it says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, Spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So that's an Old Testament prophecy about one day there will be an abomination in the holy place. And then there will be the end of sacrifices. Uh, and there will be a lot of evil and destruction happening. It says, spoken of by the Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then, then, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You see, in Judea, flee to the mountains. When you see the abomination of desolation, let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Because if you look at the famine that happened for those who were caught inside the walls of Jerusalem, I mean, they were, they were starving. There are, I know this is horrific, but some of the, there's the scenarios of, of people eating their babies. Because they didn't have any food. It was horrific. Verse 20. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation. Such as has not been since the beginning of the world. Until this time. No, nor ever shall be. 
So I want to propose to you that the fulfillment of those passages happened with the destruction of Jerusalem. So prior to the siege, there were all these wicked men and they positioned themselves in the temple and then there was a slaughter. They were murdering, they were killing, they were robbing, they were, it was, it was horrific. I mean, often we think the abomination of desolation would be some evil idol image that's put up in the temple. Now that the level of desolation and wickedness and destruction was a thousand times worse than putting up a, a, just an image of a, of a false god. So look at this, Josephus is a historian, Jewish historian, and he sort of describes that time. It says, and now when the multitude were gotten together to an assembly, this is the rest of the people were assembling because they were so upset about these wicked people that were leading these factions and who positioned themselves in the sanctuary. It says, and everyone was in indignation at these men seizing upon the sanctuary. That is the, the temple of God. At their robbery and murders, but had not yet begun their attacks upon them. So it became worse. They started to kill the people in the city. Then the one guy called Agnes, I think he was a priest, stood in the midst of them and casting his eyes frequently at the temple and having a flood of tears in his eyes, he said, certainly it had been good for me to die before I had seen the house of God full of so many abominations. All these sacred places that ought not to be trodden upon at random, filled with the feet of these blood shedding villains. So there you have a possible fulfillment of the abomination of desolation. I mean, go read the history by Josephus. It is, it is just shocking. And we see that at the time of 70 AD, the sacrifices ended, and that was what Daniel's prophecy also spoke of. So some people are still saying, no, 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 those prophecies in Daniel is for the future when the Antichrist comes. But for that then to be relevant for the future, then the temple must be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Currently, there's a mosque standing there. So we will first have third world war for them to break down that temple, build another temple. Then they must start sacrificing animals again, which they haven't done in about 2,000 years, a little bit less than 2,000 years. And then it must be stopped by the Antichrist and then the end will come. So it just doesn't make sense to me. But obviously there are different opinions about it. So great tribulation. So we had about 1.5 million people in the city. Jesus spoke about a tribulation, then great tribulation. Uh, 1.1 million people died from starvation and killing uh, all the different factions, as I said, and then the Roman army coming in. So let me give, read what Josephus, how he described, and I'm asking you, can there be a worse tribulation than this? So he says there, but when, they went in numbers into the lanes of the city, that's the Roman soldiers, with their swords drawn, they slew those whom they overtook without mercy and set fire to the houses where the Jews were fled and burned every soul in them. He laid waste the great families of dead men and upper rooms full of dead corpses that is of such as died by the famine. They then stood in horror at the sight and went out without touching anything. But although they had this commiseration for such as were destroyed in that manner, yet had they not the same for those that were still alive. But they ran everyone through whom they met with and obstructed the very lanes with their dead bodies. There's so many dead bodies, they literally obstructed the streets with dead bodies and made the whole city run down with blood 
To such a degree, indeed, that the fire of many houses was quenched with these men's blood. There was so much blood that it quenched the fires of these houses. 1.1 million people died. 200,000 became slaves. That is a great tribulation. So at the very least, it has been, from my perspective, has been fulfilled at that time. So look at this, this diagram contrasting the two events in, the, in, in Matthew 24. You have the destruction of Jerusalem on the one side, and then the coming of the Lord, and then the verses that, that reveal each one. So when it comes to the destruction of Jerusalem, it says basically, there will be days. Versus there will be the day when Christ returns. When it comes to the destruction of Jerusalem, you will know. When it comes to the return of Christ, you know not. It, when the destruction of Jerusalem, abnormal times. When Jesus returns, normal times. You will have warning with the destruction of Jerusalem. There will be no warning with the return of Christ. There will be a time of flight. Flee to the hills in Judea with Jerusalem, but there was no, will be no time for flight when Jesus returns. It will be a limited local judgment in terms of Jerusalem. It will be universal judgment when Jesus returns. It will be imminent judgment with, with Jerusalem. It is here, this generation will be fulfilled. Then you'll have delayed judgment with Jesus returning. Because it says the master delays. The parables in that chapter, it speaks about the master that delays. And then judgment on earth on the one hand and judgment in heaven when Jesus returns. So look at this, Matthew 24, verse 37. It says, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know, did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also, also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 42, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Watch therefore, be focused, live a focused life, but there won't be specific signs that will show you which day, which hour he will return. So on the one hand, you will know when Jerusalem is destroyed. You will not know when Jesus returns. So it's quite amazing. I mean, uh, history says that the Christians in Jerusalem were warned. They were warned through Jesus' words. They were warned by the Spirit. So they fled out of Jerusalem. They say there was not one Christian in the city that perished with that 1.1 million of them because God looks after his children. We are signed, blessed, protected, and we must follow his ways. Okay, so now what is a godly response for us in times like this? So as I said, you know, the fear, fear God, the fear of the Lord, God's ways, not people's ways. Now what I'm going to say now will probably not sell a lot of books because it's not very alarmistic. And it's not going to psych us up to rebel and to go to war and to trust no one. What is a godly response? 1 Peter 2, verse 13. It says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors. 
Now, if you think about it, Peter, the king that Peter was speaking about was Emperor Nero. If you put his name together, it writes 666. He was believed to be the Antichrist. They, they would burn Christians and, and use them as street lamps and set them aflame and kill many, many, many Christians. This is the emperor. This is the king that he's speaking about. And he, what, what does he say? Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors. As to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Now verse 15. For this is the will of God. This is the will of God. Looking for the will of God in the time of chaos and opinions and confusion. The will of God is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And to honor those in authority, leaders, government, presidents. Honor them. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Because in that season, they were accusing the Christians of burning down Rome, when they were accusing the Christians of a lot of evil. And so Peter was saying, guys, do good, so that it will be undeniable that you are not evil. In other words, do not be <laughs> the guys who rebel. Don't start a war. That's not God's way. Rebellion is never God's way. Submission to God and His ways means God fights for us. God fights for us. So there's a lot of voices going out in the world like, don't trust, rebel, fight back. Spirit of lawlessness that wants to fill the world. And, and the truth is, if you look at Jerusalem and what happened there is, they did not hear this verse. Because they rebelled against Rome, they rebelled against the kings, they rebelled against the governors. And, and the scary thing is there was this, this really corrupt um, Roman governor over, over Judah. And he was stealing from them, he was corrupt, he was abusing the people, he was horrific. And he provoked them. They became offended, they became angry, and then he was like, man, I'm going to get caught out by the emperor. So he provoked the war, he psyched them up to go into war. And then they were, they were slaughtered. It's a trap. Rebellion is a trap of the enemy. It is not the ways of God. It's not the ways of God. So the verse continues. Verse 17. This is the most important one. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. You want to understand how to respond in this season? This is how we should respond. If we want to see God's kingdom come on earth, if we want to see souls saved, if we want to fulfill the great commission, we shouldn't go around slandering people in authority. Even if they are evil, even if they are corrupt, we must do it God's way. Honor all people. Others value people. You can't love what you don't value. You can't say love your enemies. But... Hatred has taken a hold of so many hearts. Honor all people, even if they're corrupt, even if they are wicked. Value them. Are we any better than the people out there? Wouldn't we have done the same without Christ? Been corrupt, stolen, schemed, whatever else. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. In other words, love community. Connect in a place where you can trust one another. You can get clarity concerning the things of this world. Fear God, no other, not the Antichrist, 
or anything this world can throw at us. Fear God, honor Him, reverence Him. He is the one who reigns from above. And then honor the King, value leaders. I know this is not popular. I know we wanna, you know, when you hear another story of corruption and you hear another story of stealing and scheming and whatever else, you know, it, over time it affects our hearts. And it affects the way we speak about our government, about governments in general, about business leaders. It, it, it infects our hearts. We become negative. We become complainers. And what happens is we lose our love. We lose our love. We lose the only true ability to reach this world is to love. Despite their sins, their wickedness. And I think that's one of, probably one of the biggest tests that we are going through right now in our country. Is to say, well, there is corruption and there are these and that. But I want to say to you, there are good people out there. There are Christians in government at some places. There are Christians uh, leading businesses. There are some really, really good people out there. Don't put it on, on, on everybody. So there's a spirit of lawlessness flooding our world right now. And so Jesus spoke about this. In Matthew 24, verse 10, he says, in verse 10, he says, And then many will be offended. Even as in with Jerusalem, the Jews were offended. They began to betray one another. And they began to hate one another and obviously the Romans. It says, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. In their case, guys will rise up and say, we're going to win. We're going to destroy the Roman Empire. It did not happen like that. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And that's what I believe is happening to, to many of our hearts. If you look at the United States, that nation seems to be so divided. One half of the nation demonizes the other half, and the other half demonizes the other half. It's a mess. When we are called to love our enemies, Love our enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who spitefully use you. So it's one thing to say, man, those politicians and, you know, judge the government guys or the president or whoever else. I mean, what if it's done to you? God says, love them. Love them. When it's your family that was, that, that that's the emperor you need to honor and, and, and love and serve so you may reach them with the love of God. So how's your heart? How's your confession? Because there's a lot of complaining going around. And also a lot of racism going around. Because we say, well, all oh, that just black people are like that. All white people are like that. Just stop. <laughs> Let's just stop. Don't fall for it. You lose out when those things enter your heart. You lose your peace. You lose your joy. Fear floods into your heart. Like, oh, we need to run. No. Love overcomes fear. Love overcomes fear. So I feel God wants to, you know, restore our hearts so we can get back to the point where we don't allow the conspiracy theories and the fears and all of that to, to define us. Let the love of God define you. Let the love of God define you to love, to honor. Fear God. Honor the King. And don't lose your love. 
So practically speaking, what would this look like? It's like we need to, and I'm preaching it myself, we need to pray for our government. We need to pray for governments in the world and for business leaders. We need to daily hold them before God. You know, it's hard to pray for people when you hate them. (laughs) So there needs to be a change. Needs to be a change. So we can love, get rid of the suspicions and everything else and choose God's way. Proverbs 10 verse 18. Whoever hides hatred has lying lips. Because yeah, we do it behind the scenes. I'm sure you won't go onto Facebook like, I hate the government and I'm blacks or whites or whatever. Because that's going to be chaos. So it's behind the scenes that we're complaining. And the enemy's coming for our hearts. And whoever spreads slander is a fool. So let's not fall for it. If you don't know for a fact, for a fact, like this is the absolute truth, that's question number one. And then question number two is, if I share this conspiracy theory, if I share this thing about somebody, will it cause people to draw closer to Jesus and to love better? If not, hold your horses. Stop. Don't go down that path. Okay, so to summarize, if anyone ever claims to know when the end is, They are wrong. Okay, so we're just cutting right through all the clutter right there. Like, sorry, dude, you are wrong. You are wrong. No one knows. Okay, so you say you're better than Jesus. You won't know. And also, pandemics, world wars, famines, none of these things point to the end. It's not a sign that it's the end. Do you know when you really need to get get uncomfortable? When things are really, really normal. Because then Jesus is coming back. It's going to be really normal, nothing weird. It's going to be so normal. And then God's going to return like a thief in the night. And he's going to say, hey, are you ready? Are you ready to meet with your God? Are you ready to meet with your maker? Are you ready for the eternal judgment? Are you ready to give an account of your life? Have you lived fully for Christ? Have you loved well? Or were you like the rest? Missing it. So Daniel 12 verse 3, ending off with this verse. This is connected to end times prophecy. And it says that it reveals who the wise will be. It says, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. These are the wise. Those who love the lost, those who are passionate about giving a good witness, being a good witness to who Jesus is. When we get weird, when we embrace conspiracy theories that ultimately gets proven to be false, you look like a fool. You destroy your witness. The people in the world seems to be more balanced than some of us at times. Ouch. So let's get back to the core. Fear God, honor the king, and don't lose your love. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening. Find more on Shofar East London's podcast channel. Let's do life together.